Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast, hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. News, reaction, and opinion. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Is there another Bobby Wagner-type linebacker in this draft class? The answer might explain one of the reasons, anyway, the Seahawks pushed for a reunion with number 54. The Raiders are doing a ton of work on this QB class. Is there a trade-up in their plans, and how might that affect the Seahawks' plans at number five? The latest buzz on Jalen Carter. He's trending on Twitter today. I'll tell you why and why it matters. We're going to talk about the concept of value and why it's so important to pick number five and the Seahawks looking to maximize that value. I'll start my fave five installment, looking at position by position group in this draft class today. I'll give you my five favorite edge players. And we're going to talk about Will Levis. So much attention on Anthony Richardson, but why might Levis be the guy that John Schneider is enamored with? Thank you for listening to the Seahawks Forever podcast. I am Dan Viennes. I will be your host today. Welcome in, Seahawks fans. It is Thursday, April 6th. You know what that means? Three weeks from today. Three weeks from right now, we're going to be getting ready for the first round of the draft. And just a programming reminder, I do plan on live streaming that entire first round. I'll be able to simulcast the actual broadcast of the draft. Um, and I've even talked to some of you about inviting some of you in. We'll have some guests pop in and we'll just we'll react to the entire draft and how it goes. And obviously the Seahawks picks. And, and then, of course, I'll do a proper uh, first round recap show after that. Let's talk about Bobby Wagner. If you're watching the live stream, you see that I'm wearing number 54 in his honor. He talked to the press yesterday, uh, officially anyway, for the first time, did a Zoom meeting with local reporters. And I thought that the really interesting part, first of all, what I love so much about Bobby, what's so refreshing about him, and I know the Seahawks appreciate this about him, his self-awareness, his maturity, his professionalism, he talks in a way sometimes that we just don't see a lot from high-level athletes these days. Um, you know, he represents himself, and so he's able to give some perspective that some other players aren't. But remember this, and, and I think there's a lesson to be taken from this too. Remember a year ago, well, 13 months ago, when he was released? You know, first the news broke earlier that day that, that uh, Russell Wilson had been traded to the Broncos, and then just a few hours later that Bobby Wagner had been released and the big story was that he found out through social media. He didn't find out directly from Pete Carroll or John Schneider or anyone with the organization. Um, and the immediate backlash from the fan base was significant. It was swift. Um, a lot of criticism for John Schneider and Pete Carroll uh, that they don't respect their veteran players and and, and that they disrespected a legend. And John Schneider even came out himself afterwards and said, hey, we, you know, it was a unique situation with him representing himself and we had to make a move and it had to happen quickly and we weren't able to get a hold of him and, and we blew it and we should have done it differently. Um, it's great to see that it's come full circle. And he, even, hey, Bobby used it as fuel. He used it as a chip on his shoulder. He talked about how he wanted to get back at... But look, at the end of the day, um, the player cares for the organization. The organization cares for the player a great deal. And 
when he signed the contract, one-year deal up to $7 million, um, you know, we all kind of thought, hey, is this it? Is this his swan song, his last year? Well, during his press conference, thankfully, he was asked about this. Um, and this was his answer, and I thought this was great. And I uh, uh, want to give credit to the question to Greg Bell of the News Tribune. But here is how Bobby answered that question. And if you had your way, would you like to retire with the Seahawks? This be your last stop? If I had my way, yes. That would and be. I'm going to assume that you don't think this that's a one-year proposition on your end, though. No, I, I hope to play longer than this. <laughs> Thank you. But, but I think we're at that point where you take it a year at a time. So, Yes, sir. Thank you. That's what I mean by Bobby's different. Like how many, how many athletes admit that? Hey, we need to take this a year at a time. I mean, there's been a lot of talk the last two years about his declining skills, his, his um, ability to, to move laterally isn't what it used to be. You know, it's well known that he has to tend to that knee um, that he goes back um, overseas to get those injections before every season and misses part of the training camp to, to care for that. Although he did play in every game for the Rams last year. Um, but you know, the bottom line is you can, you can find instances on tape where he's struggling to cover downfield like he used to. Uh, but there were a lot of questions in the press conference about how he'll be used differently and his fit in this scheme, which the scheme that the Seahawks transitioned to last year mirrors very much so the scheme that the Rams used last year. And uh, and it fits Bobby's current skill set better. But it got me thinking this. Um, what's next? If this is it for Bobby. Or if he does keep coming back on a one-year basis and just kind of rolling over that contract and his role is reduced, what does the future hold at that position? And specifically the Mike linebacker position. But even when you talk about Mike and Will, Cody Barton moved on. They signed Devin Bush. Jordan Brooks' status is is really uncertain, you know, coming back off an ACL. When you look at the timeline, you look at... um. Somebody posted this the other day. Let's look at the parallel with John Radigan, how long it took him to get back. He was hurt a little bit earlier in the season, but second half of the year. Didn't come back until November, like week 11, I believe. Now, maybe they took a little longer with John Radigan because he didn't play a crucial role on the roster. Maybe he was ready to play earlier, but they just didn't need him. He's not a guy that contributes every Sunday. Um, but we don't know what Jordan Brooks's timeline is going to be. The Seahawks are going to have a deadline coming up here in about a month of whether to exercise his fifth year option. And with the uncertainty of the need, I don't think anyone expects them to exercise it. So now you're looking at 2024, Devin Bush on a one-year deal, Bobby Wagner on a one-year deal, Jordan Brooks on an expiring contract, no inside linebackers for the Seahawks. So what does this draft have to offer at that position? Is there another guy who profiles like Bobby? You know, we love we know the Seahawks love their their athletic and their physical thresholds, and they have types. I think specifically of the running back position. They have a height, weight type, a speed and agility type, a body style that they prefer. And you can really go into each draft pretty accurately putting a running back board together for the Seahawks. At inside linebacker, can you do that? Is there another guy that projects physically and skill set wise 
in a similar vein to Bobby Wagner. I'm not saying Izzy is good. Kind of in the same vein as, you know, a lot of people want to want to compare Kalijah Cansey to Aaron Donald because they have similar build. They played at the same school. There are similar questions about their fit in certain schemes coming out because of their lack of length. But when you start having that conversation, fans take it as, wait a minute, are you saying he's as good as Aaron Donald? No. So I'm not saying, is there another guy in this draft that's as good as Bobby Wagner? But is there someone who is built similarly, who might project to be the long-term answer at Mike if Jordan Brooks isn't? Or even it will. And in, in, in short, I'll just get right. The answer is no. The answer is no. There are There's a lot of depth at linebacker in this class. I talked about linebackers a couple weeks ago and some guys I liked. But almost to a T, they are almost all either significantly undersized Mike types or significantly undersized, or in some cases, long, more built like edge roll types, um, guys that are more suited to play the weak side and be coverage linebackers. There is a dearth of legitimate middle linebacker, green dot wearing mics in this draft. Really the only one that is a slam dunk to, to project to that position in the NFL is, is Jack Campbell out of Iowa. Um, but but I'm not going to make it that easy. And and he's a much different body type than Bobby Wagner anyway. Jack Campbell's built a lot more like KJ Wright than he is Bobby Wagner. 6'5", 235. He's a guy I love. You've seen me mock him a bunch of times. If the Seahawks get him in the second round, I'll be ecstatic. But are there other opportunities to find a guy like that? And I tried. I looked at testing numbers, height, weight. Bobby was so unique. Just as a refresher, coming out of Utah State, Bobby Wagner, six foot 241. I thought he was lighter coming out of college and added some good weight after he got into the pros. Uh, but he came out at 241. 33 inch arms, ran a 44640. That's 96th percentile at his position. A 1.57 second 10 yard split. That's outstanding. A 39 and a half inch vertical jump. That's 90th percentile. An, an 11 foot broad jump. 98th percentile. You talk about explosive traits. 7.1 three cone, a 4.28 short shuttle. And he was strong too. 24 reps at 225 on the bench. What knocked him down draft boards a little bit into the second round was his height. At that position, that rates in the seventh percentile. But also this, people forget. Bobby Wagner moved around a lot at Utah State, but mostly played outside linebacker. If you go to mock draftable and look up his, his testing stats, he's listed as an outside linebacker. And so a lot of these percentages and these percentiles, if you move him to, if you put him in there as a Mike prospect, would be much higher. He's kind of a freak. It's what the Seahawks saw in him. And they thought, okay, we can move him inside for good and make him a player. And he ends up being a slam dunk Hall of Famer. And so I tried to find someone that fit that mold in this draft. First of all, from a height weight testing standpoint. And second of all, from a trait standpoint. And there just isn't. 
the only two that even came close. Ivan Pace out of Cincinnati. Looked really closely at him because when you turn on the tape of Ivan Pace Jr., it's a lot of fun. This guy's a heat-seeking missile. He's an explosive hitter. He hunts for big hits. Throws his body around. But even then, he's even though he's bigger weight-wise than a lot of the other middle linebacker prospects in this draft, believe it or not, at 231, he was listed by Cincinnati during the year at 6 foot 235. That's what attracted me to him and got me looking at him. Okay, 6 pounds lighter than Bobby, same height. Nope. This is why uh, they do measurements at the combine. He's actually 5'10", and he's actually 231. Uber productive, though. This was his season at Cincinnati after transferring uh, after three years at Miami University. This is just last year alone for Ivan Pace Jr. 137 tackles. 21 and a half tackles for loss and 10 sacks. So they used him in a similar way to the way Bobby was using LA last year and the way the Seahawks planned to use him. Moving forward. Penetrating. Um, here's the thing though. When you look to see if he matches up in those other explosive traits, you cannot find that data. The only thing I could find, he didn't do all the testing at the combine is one of the reasons. 35-inch vertical. That's pretty darn good. He ran the 40 at his pro time, but I cannot, I have scoured the internet. I cannot find an official agreed upon time. Unofficially, I found one report that he ran a 4.5. Close, but he's also lighter, smaller. So not Bobby Wagner type speed. When you look at the scouting reports, this is where the difference comes in. Um, his glaring weakness or, or or his area of needed improvement as agreed upon almost universally by every scouting report you watch is his ability to go up and, and take on blocks and stack and shed. He's a guy that weaves his way through traffic and uses his, um, his instincts and just his nose for the ball to navigate traffic and get to the ball carrier. Um, intriguing player. Would be a lot of fun. I, I, I'd like to see the Seahawks draft him at some point in the mid-rounds, uh, but not a guy that you can say, okay, I can see the comparisons and maybe they see this in his future. If anything, he might be more of a will. Another guy that was brought to my attention actually by my good friends, uh, Bill Alvstad and uh, and Keith Myers at, uh, at the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. Going to try to get those guys on before the draft, do a big preview. Um Keith talked about Yasir Abdullah. Saw him test at the Combine, but didn't look into him real hard at that point because I didn't think he fit. I thought he, was a, thought he was a tweener. And here's what's interesting about him. And Keith piqued my interest. 6'1", legit 6'1", 237. Now we're getting there. 4.47, 40-yard dash, 98th percentile right there with Bobby. 10-yard split, 1.56, 93rd percentile. A 10-9 broad jump, 96th percentile. Nine and a half sacks last year, really productive. But he played edge. And the knock on him is he lacks strength at the point of attack. So he is a projection. Keith's idea was move him inside the linebacker. As I pointed out, they did that with Bobby. Do the Seahawks see something on tape with this guy where they think he can play inside linebacker? 
If so, he's the closest one physically in this draft to Bobby coming out. Does he have the instincts? Can he learn to stack and shed? Um, maybe he's great value in the middle rounds because doesn't have to play right away. Gets to learn from Bobby Wagner and the transition he made. Plays behind Jordan Brooks when he comes back. Devin Bush on the weak side. Intriguing player might be the closest one in the draft, but that's it. You know, Dan Henley was another guy I thought, but he's 6'2", 220, 225, 228. Much more of a weak side linebacker type, although he's played Mike. I, his frame doesn't look like he could add 20 pounds of muscle or good weight to that. Um, but he is taller. He does have the explosive traits and the speed. Uh, the other thing I like about Ivan Pace is, is he proved it at the Senior Bowl week. He was defensive player of the game, had 10 tackles in that game. Uh, so two guys to keep an eye on. They're the closest I could come up with. Uh, if any of you think you have a Bobby Wagner comp, send it my way, and I'll take a closer look. Uh, and then I really tried to force one of my favorite sleeper guys, uh, and that's Bumper Pool. I think you've heard me talk about him. One of the most mysterious and intriguing prospects in this entire draft. Not invited to the combine, didn't go to the Senior Bowl, played alongside Drew Sanders in Arkansas, best inside linebacker duo in the country, bar none. And when you turn on the tape and you look at Drew Sanders, Sometimes when you find all uh, 11 um, or you find scouting tape of full games that are cut up and I subscribe to a service that I get them from, um, sometimes they have the, the specific prospect circled with graphics and sometimes they don't. And I was watching, when I discovered this guy, I was watching tape of Drew Sanders. But, you know, the camera angle, sometimes it's tough to see the number. And I kept seeing this middle linebacker coming up, taking on blocks and making plays, dropping into coverage and breaking up passes, going sideline to sideline. And I thought, wow, Drew Sanders reminds me a lot of Logan Wilson, inside linebacker that I love with the Cincinnati Bengals, who's going to get paid next year. Um, Out of Wyoming, right? Logan Wilson. And no, I wasn't watching Drew Sanders. I was watching Bumper Pool, one of the great names in the draft, maybe ever. 6'2", 235, taller than Bobby, lighter. But in his five-year career, one of those guys, 23 years old, I know there's a lot of concern about age, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, 23, though, played five years, 441 tackles, 27 and a half tackles for loss, had some sacks, 19 pass breakups. This guy looks so much better on tape than I think he's getting credit for in scouting reports, he is starting to get some top 30 visits, visited Carolina last week. I have no indication he would be on the Seahawks radar, but man, you look at the projections, Draft Network has him as their 301st overall prospect. This guy might go undrafted. He looks like a player to me. A lot of fun if you want to check out, but <laughs> here's why he's such a mystery. If you Google, and I've tried so many different phrases trying to find testing scores for this guy. Even if you Google bumper pool 40-yard dash times pro day, what you get are all these articles about how to play the game of bumper pool or where to buy a bumper pool table, bumper pool strategies and techniques. And if you don't know what bumper pool is, 
Uh, you're probably much younger than me. I grew up with a table in my house. <laughs> uh, so another one of my like sneaky, good favorite prospects. Uh, let's move on. I, I, I feel like it's quite possible that between now and the draft, I might not be able to get through a single episode of this show without talking about Jalen Carter. And the reasons are pretty simple, right? It's the talent versus the mystery of what's happening with him. If you listen to the show under the field goals banner, um, after all the news broke of his legal issues, I was adamant and I got pretty fired up that he just wouldn't be on the Seahawks draft board. And, and it wasn't just the legal issues. It was after the pro day as well. Um, since then, uh, I think the process has gone pretty well for him. Things have been quiet. And I think for him right now, that's good. Talked last show about how I'm not wild about how Drew Rosenhaus is handling him, that he's only taking top 30 visits with teams that have picks in the top 10 or have indicated an inclination to possibly move up into the top 10. Um, if I'm his agent, I'm taking him everywhere. I'm also going to schedule up private workouts for teams to show that you know he is in shape and hopefully he has been working with a trainer and, and try to give him an opportunity to bounce back from that, that poor pro day. And there are, there are indications that that pro day was really not set up for him to succeed, that the coach who was running it was being unfairly hard on him, that he was putting him through position drills that don't, that he shouldn't be going through that aren't his position, um, making him run 20 yards downfield, drop in a coverage and stuff like that. Um, but he's trending on Twitter today. And that's why I wanted to bring him to bring him up. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, geez. And I clicked on it. And here's the reason he's trending is because some conversations had started and then attracted a lot of replies and comments just about how goddamn good he is on tape. <laughs> the word unblockable gets used a lot. I mean, there's there's highlights of him relentlessly fighting through four or five blocks from center guard guys chipping, fullbacks coming up to take him on and still winning and getting to the quarterback or disrupting the play. And that's the thing. I was having a discussion this morning about somebody and and uh, and and we were talking and I actually misunderstood when I first jumped into the conversation. You'd think I would know better by this by this point as long as I've been on Twitter. But I admitted, you know, that I jumped in a little prematurely and was wrong. And, and the point he was trying to make wasn't that there are scouting reports that use these words, but that there are people in quote unquote Seahawks Twitter, the Seahawks fan base or draft draft nerds like us who have started using words like lazy takes plays off, not a high motor. And it, it, it's a good example of how sometimes narratives get, go off the rails and they kind of get a life of their own because he had a bad pro day and he had some conditioning issues at the, at the end of last year, particularly in the semifinal game against Ohio state that, that he, people are assuming that he possesses those negative traits and start using those words. But you know, who doesn't use those words, any pro scout or anyone who has watched the actual tape. Um, and that's why I am not convinced that he is off the Seahawks draft board. Uh, there was a report the other day from a national reporter, I think it was Vic Tefer, nope, Albert Breer, that 
two, based on his sources, two of the top 10 teams have taken Carter completely off their board. Are the Seahawks one of them? It has been reported that one of those teams is the Raiders, not that they don't like him as a player. In fact, I think they had him in for a top 30 visit. But because it just hits too close to home because of the Henry Rugg situation and the speeding and the car and the death, that that just would be a PR nightmare as much as they might like him as a player. Are the Seahawks the other team? I, I think it's going to come down to this. I would tend to believe that they would be satisfied with how he's handled and adjudicated the legal issue. I think the Seahawks would be more inclined to be concerned about conditioning and whether or not that's a sign that he doesn't have passion for football. That term that Pete and John use all the time, loves ball, loves ball. You know, they do the first round recap, second round recap, and they always just talk about, hey, tell me about this guy. Oh, he loves ball. Man, he loves ball. They've met with Jalen Carter, met with him at the combine, I believe. If if they aren't convinced he doesn't have a passion for football that's going to allow him to overcome these this kind of downturn in his world right now, then he's off their board. I don't think it has as much to do with the legal thing. We're, I don't think we're going to see a top 30 visit. I think if they are interested in him, it behooves them to keep that quiet. Um, and maybe they'll just let the combine situation stand on itself. They also attended George's Pro Day and um, probably talked to him again there. I have seen some reports, although they they seem they come across to me more as speculation than actual reporting, that they've met with him multiple times. Um, it's a big question. It's a big question, and here's why. I told you we'd talk about the term value. This draft is so unique and unusual in that it's very good and very deep, but the top part is is weak in a way that's so unusual and so unique to what we've seen over the last 10, 20 years. Incredibly strong if you want a quarterback. Four guys that most people believe have franchise quarterback upside and maybe a fifth. Obviously, there's disagreement on some of those guys and boom and bust potential. There always will be with quarterbacks. But outside of that, there are very few prospects that universally are considered worthy of a top five pick. And that's important. John Schneider at the beginning of this offseason talked adamantly and openly about how they changed their draft, draft philosophy last year. They had started to draft a little too much for need. And he says they got grounded again last year. They went back to that philosophy of best player available. Yeah, if all things are being equal and you have a couple guys graded evenly at that spot, you're going to take the position of need. Obviously, they addressed offensive tackle. And when you looked at their draft at the end of the day, it sure looked like they addressed need. So he can say that all he wants. Obviously, you're going to lean a position of need if that's if that player's rated at that spot on your board. And that is the key. That's what value is. He has said, we will not reach for a player. We will not push for a player. And I don't think I can repeat that enough for some of you. Because I have these conversations every day. 
at the five spot, but not as much because, because I don't expand my, my web all that far from the fifth pick. You know, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, take Lucas Van Ness at five or Keon White at five. No, there's a small group of players. I talked on the last show about how, for me, it's, if they want to go quarterback, go quarterback. But if it's, it's Jalen Carter, if he's on your board, Will Anderson or trade down. But I have this conversation, most of all, with regards to the 20th pick. That is where emotions range far and wide. Opinions range far and wide. Because it's such a muddy part of the draft. There are only 15 or 16 guys in this draft that most teams are going to give first-round grades to. So 20, you're kind of in no man's land. Does a guy fall unexpectedly? Well, that sometimes makes that an easy choice. If you can find a trade-down partner, if you have a bunch of guys on your board that kind of are rated in that spot, but you feel like 20 is a little high for them because all your first-round grades are off the board, then maybe you try to maximize value by trading down. Or are you forced sometimes to reach because you can't find a partner? That's how draft boards work. Some of you have a hard time understanding this. If you're sitting at 20 and there's nobody, and Seahawks are looking at their whiteboard and there's nobody they have graded that high, they're going to try to trade down. If they can't find a partner, they have no choice but to reach technically. And John has said over and over and over again over the years, too, that they build their board for themselves and not what other teams might think. And that's where it gets really interesting. And that's where there's been historically with them some interesting choices. First of all, they've pushed for need, as he said, to a fault sometimes. I think LJ Collier might be the best example of that. But also because their board's different. They might have guys rated at 20 that you don't think are worthy of 20. And what are you basing that on? Have you grinded the tape or are you basing it on the simulators? Because the simulators are all over the place. And so let's take that conversation, that idea now, and let's apply it to pick number five. Because if you're in the camp of, man, they've got Geno and they even have Locke after that. Next year's a good quarterback class. And I've been in this camp for most of this time. You know this. And you think, I don't want to see them use a pick on a quarterback at five. I think I just actually said these words a couple of shows ago. Because I want a player there that can impact this roster because I think this roster is a good draft away and a couple more veteran signings away from being able to contend in the NFC. But that's not necessarily how teams think, and I know it's not how the Seahawks think. It's maximizing value for that pick. And I think this is the scenario. I believe if Will Anderson's there at five, they take him and run with it. But he's not likely to be. So if Will Anderson goes three to Arizona, which is kind of the universal assumption right now, and you don't have Jalen Carter on your board, and you like and have the fourth quarterback, the one who's remaining highly rated, that's the best value for that pick, even though that player isn't going to contribute for a year or two. It's maximizing potential return of that pick. If you then go, I don't want to take a quarterback 
because he's not going to help us win this year. First of all, that would be contradictory to what John said about not pushing and not drafting for need. But also then you drop down into, okay, do you just put Tyree Wilson in there? Remember a couple of months ago, that was my plan B or C. I've come off Tyree Wilson at five. You move down to 10 because Philly wants to come up and take a chance on Jalen Carter. Okay, I'll take Wilson at, at 10. But I've watched a lot more tape and I've read a lot more reports and I'm a little concerned about his lack of, of get off and twitch and scheme fit. Like the player, like the upside, like a lot of the traits, just don't know if he's a great fit right now. So that's what I mean when I talk about the value of the fifth pick. And that value could be affected now by the Las Vegas Raiders. So there was talk a week ago that the Raiders weren't really interested in trading up for a quarterback, that they were really happy with Jimmy Garoppolo and thought that was a guy moving forward. They have other needs on the roster. Let's use the seven pick for that. Well, since then, they have been handing out plane tickets left and right to these quarterbacks. They have actually reportedly now been connected to all five of the top quarterbacks in this draft and are having all five of them out for top 30 visits. Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Will Levis, Anthony Richardson, and Hendon Hooker. So they're doing a lot of work. A lot of work. A good chunk of their top 30 visits are being used, what, one-sixth of them on quarterbacks. Are they doing that due diligence in case a guy falls, or are they planning a move up? There's been a lot of talk about the Seahawks wanting to move up to three so they can get the guy they want. I just, at the end of the day, I really, first of all, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give up a that second, second round pick. I don't. There's too much value there. I love that area of the draft. In particular, if it's if they're moving up to take a quarterback. Because now, in my mind, the way I look at that is you'd be then cashing in two picks and not getting anything out of them until two, three years from now. There are needs that can be addressed that with that second round pick, man. Um, so what if the Raiders are looking at, uh, oh, what I meant to say is I just don't see Arizona making that trade in the division. Are you going to hand the Seahawks their potential franchise quarterback moving forward? Unless you know specifically it's going to be a certain player. Maybe it's Anthony Richardson and they don't believe in Richardson and their reports aren't great and they think, okay, let him have him. I don't think that's how that works. They're certainly not going to give us Will Anderson if that's the guy they want. If we assure them we're moving up for a quarterback and they're okay with that, and they know that moving down to five will allow them to get Anderson still, maybe. I just don't want to pay that cost. So are the Raiders thinking about doing it? You know, the Cardinals can move down to seven and still potentially get a falling Jalen Carter if they're looking at him. Or... Now you're getting into the range where a Tyree Wilson, Lucas Van Ness makes sense. So keep an eye on the Raiders because all of a sudden now they are heavy into the quarterback market. Um, so it may make all the sense in the world for the Seahawks to take a quarterback at five, whether you like it or not, whether you like the player or not, because that's the value of that pick and they don't want to reach. 
Now, who might that quarterback be? There's been a lot of speculation and a lot of the talk. Most of the talk's been about Anthony Richardson, how he would appeal to the Seahawks, how he would fit the offense, how his personality and work work ethic would really appeal to John Schneider. Why aren't we talking more about Will Levis? We're going to, uh, but first this, quick break. Welcome back. Um, So let's talk about Will Levis because I don't think it's getting enough attention and here's why. If you're concerned, first of all, um, and you've heard me say this before, if you're concerned about the potential of Will Levis being the pick at five, try to soothe your concerns with the knowledge that John Schneider has a pretty strong track record of when he really is sold on a quarterback, he's been right. And we know the three examples, right? And don't tell me Matt Flynn, Charlie Whitehurst. That was a long time ago. They were throwing darts at the board. They were trying to find anything they could. Obviously, Russell Wilson, he's the guy that discovered him. He's the guy that went to bat for him, convinced Pete Carroll to make that pick, targeted him in that draft, was not going to let him get out of the third round. What he saw in him, he was obviously right. And then there are two highly documented cases where Schneider fell in love with Patrick Mahomes. There was even a report on draft day that if he had fallen to their pick in the 20s, and remember at the time, there was there was enough, there were enough question marks about Mahomes that conceivably he could have fallen into the 20s. The Chiefs just liked him better than any everybody else and moved up to get him. But the reports on draft day were that Schneider would have taken him even though he had Russell Wilson in his prime. That's how he felt about him. Obviously saw something there. And just for fun sometime, uh, Google Patrick Mahomes draft scouting reports and uh, on Twitter or on Google and just read all the questions about him and how many people thought that he was not going to be a starter in the NFL. And then the other guy is Josh Allen. And we know that Schneider liked him well enough to attend his pro day in person. And after seeing that, that he liked him well enough that he talked to the Cleveland Browns about trading them Russell Wilson for the first pick that went to Baker Mayfield that year, and he would have taken Josh Allen. Uh, And we also know that that's kind of what started the chasm and the fracturing of the relationship between Schneider and Wilson's agent, Mark Rogers, that there was a uh, profanity-laced phone call that followed that when Rodgers called to ask, what the F are you doing looking at quarterbacks? And here's why I think Levis is going to hold some appeal to Schneider. Uh, and I'm not the first person to say this, but I just wanted to dig into this a little bit. And again, similar to what we were talking about earlier, I'm not saying, Will Levis is going to be as good as Josh Allen. I'm saying there are similar traits, very similar traits, and some things in the productivity that make you raise your eyebrow. And the question here isn't, do you like Will Levis? Do you think Will Levis can be a franchise quarterback? The question isn't even do I, because I don't know. I'm all over the place on this guy. Just like I am on Richardson. I can see the traits and I can get excited about it, but there's bust potential as well. But the comparisons between Levis and Allen... Allen's slightly taller. Okay, let's go through this. 6'5", 237. Levis, 6'4", 229. Both really good athletes for that size. 
Allen ran a 4.7540. Levis doesn't have an official 40 time on record yet this offseason, but it's believed that he runs in the 4.7 range. Allen, 10 and an eighth inch hands. Levis, 10 and five eighths. Uh, Allen, uh, the agility, a 6.93 cone, a 10 foot broad jump. Levis, a 10 four broad jump. Allen, a 33 and a half inch vertical. Levis, 34 inch vertical. I don't know if you've seen the pictures on Twitter, but Levis had a, an ankle injury during the season that affected his mobility and his ability to train. And he posted some pictures, kind of a before and after. He looked like one of those V shred ads, um, like a shirtless picture flexing from December and then from just a couple of weeks ago with the work he's done in the offseason. It's phenomenal. The amount of good muscle he's been able to add and even cut some fat. The guy's a physical specimen, as Allen was coming out. And then you look at the production. Biggest knock on Levis, decision-making and accuracy, right? Josh Allen's touchdown-to-interception ratio at Wyoming in 27 games was 44-21. to 21. That equates to just over 3% of his attempts ended in an interception. Will Levis, over 38 games in his career, 46 to 25. It's just a tick higher. It's like a, it's like a hundredth higher, but essentially it rounds to 3% of his attempts. So their touchdown to interception ratio, identical. Essentially identical. Completion percentage, Josh Allen. Well, first of all, Will Levis. In his career, 65% completions. In the last two years at Kentucky, over 65% completions. Josh Allen, 56.2% completions. But Dan, he doesn't, he wasn't thrown to NFL wide receivers. Neither was Will Levis. The biggest factor that people like to point to in trying to explain what was viewed as a regression from two years ago to last year was. He had a terrible offensive line. True. Watch the tape. It's painful. And he had no NFL receivers to throw to. Well, neither did Josh Allen, but Josh Allen was also playing at a significantly lower level of competition. So he's throwing against big sky DBs and big sky linebackers and facing big sky edge rushers. I was surprised. I, I hadn't looked at the stats in a while. I thought Levis's completion percentage was going to be in the 50s, 65%. Um, my knock on him, just watching him, is that he needs to learn to not throw his fastball all the time. Like, he can fit balls into tight windows that a lot of NFL quarterbacks can't or won't even attempt to fit it into. Uh, but there are times he needs work on the deep ball. I don't think it's insignificant or a coincidence that Greg Olson was the hire at QB coach for the Seahawks because he has a really impressive history of working with young quarterbacks. Um, I think they hired him with the idea in mind that at some point this year or next year, they were going to add a guy to the roster to develop. So the question about Levis is, is he Josh Allen or is he Jake Locker? Another guy who was all traits coming out of college, had some issues with completion percentage, just didn't turn out to be a pro. Here's what I'll say about that. The final point here. We've heard John Schneider talk about, and he first coined this phrase before he drafted Russell Wilson, when he said one of the biggest things he looks for in quarterbacks is a guy that can tilt the room, walks into the room, work ethic, the way he carries himself, attitude, leadership. Jake Locker never had that. 
those of you who followed his career at UW and even afterwards, he just, he didn't pass that love ball test. He was all traits, no passion, which is one of the reasons he retired at a young age. Just didn't want to play anymore. Um, brace yourselves. Will Levis could be the pick. I can really see John Schneider uh, falling in love with that guy. If he's even there, because now there are reports that he's the guy Indy wants. So we'll see how that works out. We're going to um, get into some positional breakdowns. And rather than just ranking different positions, I thought I would look at it this way, because I've talked about a lot of these guys so much. I talked about linebackers a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to call these my fave fives. So I'll take each position group and, and I'll give you five guys that are my favorites for one reason or another. Not necessarily the five I think are the best, but guys that I like, that I think fit, and that would provide value to the Seahawks at whatever position they're drafted at, some high, some low. And for the purposes of this, I'm going to eliminate some names I've talked about a lot. I'm not going to talk about Keon White, talked about him last show, how I love that pick at 20. Not going to talk about Lucas Van Esch. You know how much I like him. Not even going to talk about Moro Ajomo, a guy that I've talked about a lot as a, someone who's rising draft boards out of Texas. Um, can be that 3-4 defensive end, but also reduce inside. His run defense could be training tape, and he has some explosiveness and a high motor. Um, so I've already talked about those guys enough. See, I couldn't even help myself from talking more about Ajomo there. That's how much I like him. And I'm also going to eliminate three other guys who are used to be hands down projected in the first round. Two of the three have dropped, but these are guys I just can't put a finger on. And that's Miles Murphy out of Clemson, Isaiah Foskey from Notre Dame, and Zach Harrison out of Ohio State. All three of these guys have unbelievable physical attributes. Like, they're the guy that you want getting off the bus first, right? Long, athletic, explosive, but the production just isn't there. And I just, I watch the tape and I don't get excited. That's the word. These next five guys are guys that when I watch their tape, I can get excited about. First one I'm going to talk about is Will McDonald. And this one I've come around on. I had dismissed him as a prospect early in the process when uh, I think there was a, I think Mel Kuyper's first mock draft had McDonald going to the Seahawks in the first round. And I thought he doesn't fit. He's 6'4", 245. He's lean. He's long, but he's lean. And I thought it's redundant with what we have. We already have Nuosu and Boye Mafe, Right. Not to mention guys that are coming back, Alton Robinson and Tyreek Smith at Ohio State, fifth-round draft pick from last year who spent the year on IR, who I'm really excited to see in training camp and preseason, see if he can carve out a role. But the more I watched McDonald and read about him, first of all, that Iowa State was asking him to do things that really weren't his strength. They were asking him to come up and take on the run and and control some gaps and things like that. When you watch this guy, when he has opportunities to just let it loose and get after the quarterback and also the senior bowl and his performance that week, open my eyes as well. Um, he might be the bendiest, most explosive edge player in this draft and could be such a great compliment with Mafe, who we saw how well he played the run, maybe lacks a little bit of that twitchy explosiveness, but also just the idea 
that we need to continue every single year adding to that group. Daryl Taylor's in the last year of his deal. Nuosu, although we're presuming an extension, last year of his deal, right? Mafe on his rookie contract, not sure about his ceiling. So adding a, one of these types of guys, you know, if you're concerned about Daryl Taylor and his regression last year until he came on at the end of the year, and you're concerned that he's a one-trick pony and can only rush the passer, okay, and he's in the last year of his deal, maybe he doesn't earn an extension. McDonald's a similar type of player, but can be so explosive. So I've come around on him. Another guy that I really like is Isaiah McGuire. And this is a guy that sometimes you'll see in mock drafts going as late as the fifth round where the Seahawks have two picks. Out of Missouri, 6'4", 272. A guy that I think can play that stand-up. He can play 3-4 defensive end. He can reduce inside. And what I like about this guy is really good hand usage and a relentless motor. Um, Just a good, solid package where... If you're watching Missouri tape and you're watching someone else, you're going to keep noticing Isaiah McGuire. Interesting player and a guy that I think really fits what they need and could be had on day three, potentially. Uh, Tuli Tuopolotu out of USC is another guy that I was slow to come to because he didn't have those twitchy, explosive traits. 6'4", 290, played all around the line at USC. And I think actually that 290, I can't remember where I pulled that from. I think he actually shed weight to go to the combine trying to show that he could play a little bit lighter. I kind of like him more at 290 because he can be, again, that one thing that they really don't have, that true 3-4 defensive end, but a guy that can reduce inside. How often do we hear that, right? Seahawks love those types of players. But his productivity, his sack numbers and tackle for loss numbers, I think he was defensive player of the year in the Pac-12 last year. Really interesting guy that's, that's usually had on day two all day long and could fit. In that same vein, Mike Morris out of Michigan, 6'6", 278. And if you watch the combine, you might be thinking, Dan, are you nuts? You don't know anything about football. He tested terribly. He really did. But then you turn on the tape. And he's a guy that needs some refinement. Uh, what's the name of the, the Seahawks? Uh, is it Brandon Jordan? The guy they they hired that has such an extensive history working with with young pass rushers just to be a pass rush specialist. Mike Morris just needs to learn some moves and some counters. But as a run defender, a gap controller, standing his ground and power rush, um, Mike Morris is really exciting. And he's a guy that the Seahawks met with at the Combine. Uh, and then Byron Young, who was just reported yesterday to be one of the Seahawks' top 30 visits. He's a guy a lot of you aren't going to like, and I told you I'd talk about age. He's 25 years old. He's another guy that Kuiper had going to the Seahawks in the first round in one of his mocks. And at the moment he did that, I remember thinking, I haven't seen this guy earlier than the third round in any other mock on the planet. 63243. He is more of that edge outside linebacker type, right? He's not going to be your defensive end. So he's going to fit into that Daryl Taylor Nwosu Mafe class. Because of his age, he's going to drop, but he has really long arms and you watch the tape and he's a fucking stud. This guy knows how to rush the passer. Bendy has counter moves, can dip inside. And also holds up well against the run, has really good technique. I don't care if he's 25 years old on day three. Maybe even in the third round. 
And here's why I wanted to talk about age. I think my opinion has changed on this. And, and again, remember, this year is unique. We're not getting, we see more prospects this year that are 24, 25 years old. Hendon Hooker is another one than we ever have. And it's because this is kind of the last class of players to come out and be drafted that got to take advantage of that extra year during COVID and stay in school for another year. And I look at it this way. I was talking to somebody about this the other day and they said, by the end of his first contract, he's going to be 29 years old. So what? (laughs) If you get his best four years out of him, and he contributes to be you being a good dynamic defense and a winning football team. And he gets to 29, he's a superstar, and you don't want to pay him top of the top of the market edge money, 20 million a year, right? Kind of that that market cliff where they weren't comfortable going with Frank Clark. Okay, let him walk or trade him. Just I think teams more and more are trying to balance their salary cap and manage their cap. More teams are letting high draft picks walk after their first contract. More teams are declining fifth-year options. Don't want to be tied into that. Just take good players. He's not Brandon Whedon playing edge. He's not 28 or 29 where you have to worry about maybe he's peaked physically. No. This guy's an experienced player playing at a high level in a big conference. He's been productive and he has really exciting traits. I would not be upset about Byron Young uh, being the pick. So we have a lot more uh, draft stuff to talk about over the next couple of weeks. This is going to be so much fun, you guys. Again, just a reminder, uh, I'm going to live stream the first round of the draft and we'll react and have some guests. Uh, got Got some cool guests lined up. Uh, for later in the show. Follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever for those announcements. Um, I will do another show later this week. We'll do another Fave 5, break down another position group, and of course I'll react to any news that might happen over the next couple of days. Thank you for listening. This is Seahawks Forever. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit that notification bell so you get notified of new episodes and subscribe and like and all of that. It helps. It helps get the podcast into the algorithm. Last show is... Closing in on 2,000 views. And the more that happens, the more momentum you get, the more visibility, and we can get more people involved um, and get some interaction. So until next time, I am Dan Vienz. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon.